Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have our friend of the podcast, uh, Dick Foth, on another session of Back Channel with Foth. And we're going to jump into a conversation with Dr. Butch Fry on the challenges and joys of living uh, in marriage on the mission field. Dick, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Good to be back. Christmas is past and here we are. In, here we are. It's a 2024. New year. 2024. So hard to believe. Hard to believe. Dick, got two questions for you. The first one is, how do we practically let our kids see the goodness of God in our life in the good and hard times? You know, most of life, from my perspective, is not based in what happens or what happens to us as much as it is on how we respond or react to that. Uh, and today, particularly today, conversations are sometimes a challenge. Uh, Ten years ago, I was talking to some college students, and I said, what's the, what's the word that, that you would use to dis- describe your generation? And this one young man said, overwhelmed. And I'm saying, by what? And he's saying, by information. Da, da, da. And his... It, and and I said, well, yeah, but that, I mean, you're not overwhelmed compared to my parents' generation that went through yeah. Spanish flu and World War was over. And I just said, um, so w- you're, you're just connected. You know, you have conversations online and so forth. And he said, yeah, I'm connected that way. My problem is I don't know how to start a conversation. And mm-hmm. sometimes parents feel that with their children. We don't mm-hmm. know how to start conversations with um, a generation that's coming up, perhaps, this is not yeah. always true, right. that doesn't know how to have those, right? Yeah. Sherry Turkle, Sherry Turkle, who's a, a psychologist from MIT, wrote a book called Alone Together. And she said the thing that has disappeared, and she was speaking of American life, and of course we're talking around the world here, sure. but the thing that's disappeared so often in families is the family dinner table, mm-hmm. where you can have conversations and you don't have to solve everything. You put a comment in it and come back to it next Thursday or whatever. Right. And so I think in terms of how we help our children see the goodness of God in our life is how we talk about God, mm-hmm. how we talk about or reflect on him, how we reflect on our circumstances, okay. and whether we do that consistently or not. Ruth had a practice in our, in our, when the children were smaller around our dining room table of asking this question, tell me one thing for which you're thankful today hmm. or two things, whatever it was. And that, that piece is that ongoing conversation yeah. and reflection is I think the main way that we practically let our kids see the goodness of God and, and they're watching us. Yeah. So when something challenging happens, if we have an explosive reaction or an immediate reaction, that's what they're learning. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if that helps, but that's no, what I got. It does. And, and parenting is is a, is, is a challenge. It's, it's a challenge. Oh, so, maybe. Yeah. Second question someone said in said, how do you navigate conversations with your kids when you're in a season of transition that will impact them and they are not excited about the transition? This, of course, has to do with the age of the kids, doesn't it? <laughs> so Ruth and I had these four kids under the age of seven, and then... We were pastoring. We were doing a church plant, University of Illinois. This is 1978, and uh, we made a change. And the eldest daughter, uh, who's now a grandmother, but she was 12 at the time, and the next one was 11, 18 months younger. And um, 
we called the two oldest one into our bedroom and we told them that we were leaving, going to leave the church in a few months. And we were going to go to this college in California to be president. And both the girls just exploded in tears, just almost convulsive sobs. And between their head jerking sobs, one of them said, but daddy, we prayed about this and we asked God to never let anything like this happen. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what God was I talking to? (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, I think you have immediate reaction. And again, I think this comes back to conversations around the dinner table to, to help, to help our children understand that there's one thing that will always be true about life. And that is change. Yeah. That's just how it is. Yeah. And, but it's it's like anybody who moves. You've got friends. Their main thing is we know this space. It's all we've ever known. And we have these friends. And now we're going to do this other thing. Yeah. And so I think sometimes, especially in missionary work, it's a lot like military work. You know, mm. people, children of military dependents or yeah. who are military dependents either really have it together or they don't have it together. There's not much in between. And that's my experience with missionary kids. Yeah. Is it, and it has to do again, and this puts a weight or a gift, a weight on the parents or gives a gift to them to how do we prepare our young people for change? Wow. And, and so I think, I think ongoing conversation about life and that sort of thing is the best possible thing. And the, and the children got over it. They're, they're healthy. As far as we know, they're healthy. <laughs> They both have children of their own. One of them has grandchildren of her own. So, yeah, well, it's like you said, having those conversations and um, it's uh, and as you pointed out, sometimes those conversations that maybe might have been easier in the past, learning to help our our kids have those conversations and teach them um, to engage in that way, I think, is is a very valuable insight. You know, one of the one of the other things very quickly is that it isn't just that we have conversations around the dinner table but if our family is constructed around communication and and communication in different settings so if we if we pray together or have family prayer a little bit or or a lot whatever right if you play together if if it's a holistic experience then when it comes time to change it's a holistic experience of change as well yeah, good word. Good word. Dick, always pre- appreciate spending some time with you on Back Channel with Foth. We're going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Dr. Butch Fry on marriage and the joys and challenges on the mission field. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here again today with a friend, Dr. Butch Fry. Butch, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here. Butch, we're fellow West Virginians. Um, we're good friends. Um, we know each other well, but maybe there's some people listening in that don't know as much about you. Will you share just a little bit about yourself before we jump into some of the questions I have for you today? Well, I did. Uh, I grew up in the metropolis of Billington, West Virginia. Actually, uh, I grew up in a suburb. I grew up <laughs> in Sugar Creek, which is a, a suburb of Billington. And, there you uh, go. Uh Loved my life there, and um, I grew up as a United Methodist uh, kid, and uh, came to the Lord, and was uh, gloriously filled with the Holy Spirit as a teenager, 
uh, called the missions all by the time I was 16 years old. Uh, only I'd never heard a missionary speak in my life, so I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Wow. But um, having close relationship with the Assemblies of God, I soon was able to become more acquainted with missions, and that was our gateway in. And um, so my wife and I were married at a young age. We have uh, two kids, our son Darren uh, and our daughter Andrea. Uh, Darren and his family live in Paris. He is an AI consultant, and she is an international arbitrator. Uh, and um, our daughter uh, lives in Springfield, Missouri. She's a therapist. Uh, between them, they have uh, four boys that as of the end of this month, their ages will be six, seven, eight, and nine. So when they're together, we have a small circus. Wow. Crazy, and, um, crazy. So that's, we were with, uh, we were missionaries for 35 years, took early retirement and began to develop uh, trade winds, counseling and consulting, which uh, uh, we we work primarily with expatriates, um, but not not exclusively. So uh, we've uh, we've enjoyed doing that in this season. I was uh, ordained as a deacon uh, into the Anglican Church in November of last year and um, look forward uh, to the process within the next year to two years of being ordained as a priest at the ripe age of 64 or 65. Wow. So uh, that's that's kind of Cliff's notes on me, Aaron. Uh, very good. Very good. And we're fellow lovers of ramps and pepperoni rolls. So, ramps and pepperoni uh, for, rolls. I don't know if you saw the meme last week, but one of one of the uh, sports casters uh, that was announcing for WVU game decided that he wanted to try a pepperoni roll in front in, in a live broadcast, and he put mayonnaise on it. Wow. And he, he incurred the wrath of every West Virginia <laughs> Sacrilege. As, as that blasphemous act took place. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, Butch, we're going to spend some time today um, talking about marriage and some and the impact of ministry and living overseas on marriages. There's joys and there's challenges. So I just want to start off by asking, um, how have you seen over your, your ministry and your life um, living overseas, how does it impact marriages? Maybe some of the joys of it and maybe some of the challenges of it. Yeah. Well, uh, it, you know, we don't have to uh, talk about the unique strains that come on marriages uh, that are that are developing overseas. Now, now one caveat might be um, uh, if two people were married and they both grew up overseas, I think that that uh, that had, adjustment is mitigated a bit more easily. Um, sometimes it can work against them because they may be blind to, uh, they may not know what they what they don't know, right? And, but normally I think it gives them a bit of an edge in, in their adjustment. And all I can tell you is Pam and I had our worst fight in history, our first year in Mexico City in the traffic. Um, but it was prior to GPS, and we had a book of maps that we were to go by to get from our house to the kids' school. And we got lost, and getting lost meant adding another 20 to 30 minutes uh, to the trip. And I'll never forget, uh, here we are with, with two kids that are already nervous about starting a new school, and we are just going at it uh, <laughs> in that 16-passenger task force van trying to get through traffic to the school. So sometimes it's just those normal things that we that we really don't 
plan on becoming as big as they are. But for us, that was a, that became a huge thing. Yeah. Uh, in Mexico City, the traffic ruled our lives. Mm. Our schedules were set by traffic patterns, and we just didn't understand that when we first moved there. And so, all of those unknowns that we have to negotiate, we end up negotiating individually, but also as a couple. Mm. So there, there, and and that's. So you have three adjustment patterns taking place in any marriage. It's the two individual adjustments and then the adjustments as a a married unit. Wow. So, Butch, how do people recognize those three adjustments? I mean, is it is it inherent that you recognize you're going through those adjustments and those transition? Or is that something you have to be intentional about having conversations about and recognizing and considering? Is is that a fair question? Yeah, it is a fair question, Aaron. And I think that open marriages and and by I don't want that to mean what some people will <laughs> infer by it. Marriage is where you have uh two individuals that are very open with each other hmm. and communicate very openly. Uh, I think have an edge in this and that they will talk about what they are experiencing individually and then of course what they are what they understand that they're going through as a couple. And so I think that the more open we are with one another and um, in talking, talking about it, it doesn't mean that the situation, uh, the existential part at least, improves what we talk, but it does help our coping mechanisms hmm. uh, to be more alert and we understand and inviting uh, our spouse to help us uh, with our individual uh with our individual adjustment is, I think is important yeah. uh, because they, they will have eyes in, you know, marriages where husbands give wives and wives give husbands. But I, I somehow I think it's more important for the husband to give the wife mm-hmm. permission to help keep in check uh, the behavioral patterns that come about during adjustment. Those marriages, I think tend to negotiate it with a bit more ease, at yeah. least uh, externally. Yeah. What are some reasons, Butch, you mentioned you, you, your thought was it more for the males to give to the females? Is there any specific reasons on that? Well, I think that um, when it comes to emotions, fe- uh, females generally, and uh, this, is a, this is a generalization and a stereotype, which is dangerous and uh, could bring about a couple <laughs> emails or phone calls, but, but generally... Uh, wives have a variety of ways and emotions uh, that ways of handling things that are perfectly acceptable mm. um, where uh, in Western society, uh, anger uh, is the legal way that men have of handling things. Society looks at angry men as being normal. Uh, men are allowed to be angry. They're allowed to demonstrate anger. But if, a, if you know, if, if a man cries, uh, over something other than something spiritual yeah. in our context, then, then you know, there, there are a few eyebrows that are going to be raised over that, right? Hmm. Uh, generally, that's, been the, that's yeah. been the pattern. I do think society is changing. I think culture is changing, and, and that is moving on the, on, the, uh, on the scale, but it hasn't moved that much yet. So because anger has become that one acceptable expression, then husbands give themselves or men give themselves permission Mm. to be angry and anger is a very superficial uh emotion or feeling it's not really a trigger 
Um, and people will say, well, I got angry. Well, what was going on down underneath that anger? Mm. Okay? And men especially have to sit with that and investigate and realize, well, these were the triggers that were actually being pulled. I felt less than. I felt that it wasn't good enough. I felt that uh, I was being disrespected. And and I've had that sensitivity since I was, as long as I can remember, since I was five years old. Wow. And so I think it's important that husbands give their wives permission to help them to drill down and identify what is really going on rather than just getting angry over it. Because the problem is the repercussions of the anger can be severe. And hmm. you know, a, a half dozen words can be spoken in anger in two seconds that will take months or years to recover from in yeah. relationally. So drilling down, discovering what the feeling and uh, what the trigger is and dealing with that uh, with the help of our wives and most of the help of the Lord as well, will go a long ways. Um, and it, quite honestly, there, you know, there are also uh, emotions that uh, wives feel that, that tend to be more surface than, uh, than what they discover when they begin to drill down. So I think this whole exercise of drilling down is very helpful, especially during adaptation and adjustment. Yeah. Butch, that that process of drilling down, encouraging each other to to do that. Is there some things you found that work and and maybe don't work? I know every couple is different, and we can't we do have to work within generalizations. But there's there's some patterns. Is it timing? Is it uh, trusting each other? Or are there some things that help people walk in that so it becomes healthy and it doesn't escalate um, the the triggers or make it worse? Is that does that make sense? Yeah, we everybody wants to get to intimacy, mm-hmm. and and with guys, we especially want to get to intimacy because that means sex, right? Sure. Um, but everybody, I think everybody has a built-in hunger, God-given hunger for intimacy. Okay, and that's often the goal that couples have. Uh, you know, we we need better intimacy. Well, intimacy can't be the the beginning step. Uh, and we work our way backward from intimacy. It's a three. It's a three-step process, and the step prior to intimacy is vulnerability. Uh, there's no real intimacy unless two people are being vulnerable with one another, right? Yeah. But that's not where we start either, because I'm not going to be vulnerable unless I feel safe. Okay. So the first step is always safety, creating safety. And that's not just in a marriage relationship. That's in any relationship. Okay. Uh, if we want to go deeper in relationship, we have to be safe mm. for others. Mm. Uh, now, as, as a therapist, that means I, I have to be safe for clients. I have to be yeah. safe for the people that I, uh, that I see on a, a professional level. Uh, and that means not judging. That means allowing them to uh, express exactly what's going on and then helping them to drill down and to go deeper. And we do the same thing with each other in marriage. We, we're safe uh, for our spouse. I, my wife is one of the safest people that God has put on this earth. Mm. Uh, she and people around her know it. And uh, she, she is not going to judge uh, people. Uh, she's not going to judge me when I'm vulnerable and say, you know, 
Uh, that really hurt when that was said because it reminded me of this. Or, you know, when I when I was in this situation, it triggered this. And she, you know, there's not going to be judgment there. Mm-hmm. And so she's safe. And when she's safe, I can be vulnerable. Yeah. And when we're vulnerable, we drill down uh, into a deeper level of intimacy. Does that answer your question? It Aaron? does. Very, very good word and and challenging um, for sure. But but when it comes to working and serving maybe alongside of each other, I think that's one of the differences in, in missions sometimes, at least for Heather and I. You know, Heather was a teacher. I was working in the hospital. Um, we went into missions, and then all of a sudden, we were spending a lot of time together. Um, how can... And then you, there's a lot of focus on work. There's a lot of focus on ministry and serving. And then sometimes the time that we spend together becomes work around work. How can couples begin or once again or prioritize time spent together that maybe is not centered around work and uh, ministry? Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think you have to be intentional about it. And my wife and I, Pam and I have never known what it is to not work together. We, uh, from, from, the age of 20, uh, we've been working together. Yeah. Uh, so we, I, I'm probably not the best person to answer that question, making that transition, but we have learned to be very intentional and somewhat protective hmm. uh, about times that we set aside. Um, I, for instance, I have a conflict coming up beginning the end of this month, and I normally lead morning prayer at the church on Thursdays, and I I uh, talked with our uh, curate yesterday morning, and I said, you know, I'm, uh, as of uh, January, end of January, I'm, I'm going to need to switch to do a different day of uh, morning prayer. And um, uh, so he came back with, uh, would you be willing to switch on Friday? And, you know, my tendency as a people pleaser is to say, yeah. well, I think I, let me, let me look, I think I can make that work. But Friday is our day. Yeah, uh, We celebrate Fridays. Mm. I mean, Fridays are great. Um, we, you know, it's about foods that we really like. It's about activities that we really like. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's our day in as much as it can be. Now, obviously there are times when we're working for a conference or something, we're we're not going to say, Hey, we're not going to show up on Friday. (laughs) uh, This was, uh, different. So I, I, I said, no. And I responded by saying, well, Friday is a day that we we kind of try to keep mm. for ourselves if we can. And so no problem. So now I'm doing it on Tuesday. But I think we have to um we have to be intentional. We have to carve out time and we have to find what we like. Pale and I are very different in our mm. likes. Mm. Uh, I, I I like I'm I'm a runner. I, I like biking. I'm at the gym. Uh she loves a good book. She uh, I I like drama movies she yeah. loves the shoot 'em up movies yeah so we we have to work at finding activities uh that we really like and we found them hmm. you know there's a list of things that we know that when we're together that both of us uh will like and so we we tend to really capitalize on those and the other days of the week we will you know we will do the things that we like as individuals more. So I think intentionality, Aaron, is always the answer uh, to these questions. We have to be intentional in carving out time and establishing what the things are that are life-giving to us as a couple. 
Yeah, it's good. That's good. Butch, one of the questions we talked a little bit before hit record, um, but how have you seen secrets impact marriage? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question, uh, Aaron, because as therapists, there, there seem to be two primary schools of thought as it relates to secrets, from what I can tell. Um, there, there is a school of clinicians that uh, will advocate for the keeping keeping of secrets and uh, let's let's use the what would be one of the bravest secrets if there was an unfaithful act yeah. uh, that took place with with a husband or a wife and uh there there are plenty of therapists that will say you need to as much as possible not injure your spouse more than you already have by divulging what's mm. happened if there's no danger of this coming to light, then you need to, uh, and they make a very good case. You need to, you've already hurt them yeah. subconsciously and you need to begin to heal uh, and to help them heal from that without divulging the information. And uh, as you may guess, I'm not a member of that school. Of <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't, I think that of necessity uh, in order to, maintain intimacy in a relationship, honesty is always important. Hmm. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that a wife is going to share every single secret thought that she's had with her husband, because, our, you know, we our minds are what our minds are. We have no control over the bird that flies over our head, but we can keep it from building a nest in our hair, right? True. So, um, but what it, what it does mean is that uh, when there has been uh, something take place within the marriage relationship that's been harmful. I do believe that uh, the responsible party uh, has a duty uh, to uh, take that, to take that to the spouse and to share. Mm. Um, and, you know, of course, there will be increased hurt upon yeah. the receiving of that uh, news. And I think that I would always counsel the the spouse to uh, do this with a good clinician, not not mm. in the presence of a good therapist or counselor, but with with the tools that the counselor, the therapist is providing. Uh, mm. Don't try to get down this path alone. And so I I think that secrets impact in, in that Aaron. There, it's just an unnecessary wall that okay. goes up. And when there's a wall, uh, a very high wall like that, there cannot be effective interpersonal communication on a level that needs to be present in a marriage relationship. Wow. Challenging, um, for sure. And kind of on that same same idea with secrets, you know, our culture, at least in my opinion, somehow defines us or supports the idea that the one thing that defines us is our temptations. Um, How can couples grow in that not keeping secrets, not hurting each other, but at the same time recognizing that there are temptations. You you share about this when you talk about the beast in the box and you, you know you do a phenomenal job sharing about that. But when it comes to temptations, how, how do we walk in authenticity and not be defined by our temptations? So I think that we, uh, those of us that uh, are biblically based, I think that we have a real edge with this. Okay. Because you see, we don't we don't believe that temptations are a sin. Hmm. Uh, as I said, we have no uh, we have no control over the bird that flies over our head. Yeah, um, but we do have control over 
how much attention we give uh, and how uh, how much assistance we give to that bird when it's trying to build a nest in our hair. Okay. Right. Yeah. So um, I think that normalizing temptation uh, is great. Um, I'll, I'll never forget uh, listening to a leader uh, speak to uh, the people that he served, and he he normalized uh, the temptation that he'd faced uh, as a leader. He says, and then he went on to say, as you all will face, which I thought was very important. Uh, so I think normalizing temptation and understanding that that you know Jesus was tempted, we will be tempted. Uh, I think that's an important first step, and I and you have to know that for uh, for biblically based Christians, this can sometimes be uh, a really difficult leap uh, to understand that they have no control over their feelings. Feelings just are; hmm. they're either right or wrong. Feelings are sources of information. We listen to feelings, and then we act. Hmm. Now, I think that sometimes um, there, there was a school of thought for years uh, in the evangelical church that you rebuke everything under the sun. And I think people had a tendency to rebuke some things that maybe even came from God at one point. Hmm. But um, understanding that feelings come. Yeah. Uh, and and, and when, when we accept feelings as a source of information— and don't become guilt-ridden at the first juncture by a feeling that we've had, hmm. uh, then we put the feelings to work for us. Okay. Um, uh, so uh, somebody who is uh, trying to, uh, for instance, to curb a bad habit, let's say it's a man who has explosive anger, Okay. Uh, and he's and he's trying to, uh, curb the demonstration of that anger in a way that it's healthy. Uh, and somebody crosses him in a way that it just makes him completely irate. Let's say he's in traffic and, um, you know, he's trying to get to work. He's running late. Uh, and there's somebody going, somebody going 25 miles an hour in the left lane and the right lane is full. <laughs> and he just begins to feel anger. Yeah. Um, there's no, sin in that feeling. Hmm. Uh, now, what he does to act on that anger is the question mark. Hmm. Uh, and so that's where we let our feelings inform us. Hmm. Okay, you know, I, I'm i feeling explosive right now. Uh, why? Well, because I'm trying to get to work, and that person in front of me is hindering and is going yeah. to cause me to be late, and they have to know what they're doing. Uh, where when we look closer, that person is driving a car with a wheelchair tag. Yeah. Uh, and it's taken all the strength that they can muster to get behind that wheel. So uh, letting feelings inform us and those feelings encourage us to do more investigation is always a good first step. Good word. Good word. Butch, we've talked about some of the challenges in marriage, but what are some ways that you've seen that healthy marriages will impact um, the kids we raise, maybe the work we do, and the ter- the teams we serve on. That's three vast. Bo- there's a three different baskets, but healthy marriages do they impact all of those areas? And your experience with this? Of course, they do. Yeah, I, I read a lot of uh, uh, 
reference material uh, as it comes in on people applying for jobs. And um, when it talks about their marriage, uh, the one word is model. Um, we model for all three categories that you mentioned. We uh, we model for our kids. Uh, we model for you know those around us. For those in the ministry, they will they will model uh, for those that they're leading, and for for you know the general public that uh, that's just casual acquaintances when they see us uh, with a healthy marriage. Or, or a relatively healthy marriage that that provides a model, uh, and you'll hear you'll eventually hear your kids say, you know, my my mom and dad didn't have the perfect marriage; they went through tough times, but they they stuck it out and they worked and they did the right things to to move forward. So I think that it's uh, it's just simply the the whole concept of modeling people people look at a good marriage and they want to replicate that. Yeah. Which how in ministry where sometimes it seems like your your marriage is on display, how do you model a healthy one without modeling a fake one? So, you know, I mean, there's a temptation that, hey, we got you mentioned that, hey, it wasn't perfect, you know, but my, my parents worked through that. How do you resist the idea that the, this perception that everything's perfect and we have a perfect marriage at the same time? When it's kind of un, not under scrutiny, but you're kind of on a stage where people see your marriage. How can you have an authentic marriage without going and trying to portray something that's not? Does that is that a fair question? Yeah, I think it's being honest with people, mm. um, and this this depends on comfort level. I never encourage people to go beyond where they feel safe and sharing, okay. being vulnerable. But I think that when when you are trying to um, portray. Uh, an authentic model or a genuine model. This this is what flawed humanity in a relationship that's trying to model itself uh, after uh, the bride and the groom, hmm. the bride of Christ and the groom. This is this is this is what it looks like. I think that um, that that in essence is is how it comes into place. Understanding that there are plenty of bumps in the road. There are plenty of disagreements. There are plenty of times when we become patient, impatient with one another. Um, I think of my own parents, um, and they didn't have a modern marriage model. I mean, they. my dad grew up very poor. Uh, my mom grew up uh, one of 13 siblings. I think yeah. between his, hers, and ours, my dad had that many or more mm. uh, because his mother had died when he was young. But so they brought a, a fair amount of baggage into their marriage. And I always said that they never got in a fight, but you could hear them discussing issues a good half a mile away. <laughs> so, you know, they 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 usually didn't try to shield us kids from when they yeah. disagreed. And I'm so grateful that they didn't hmm. because we saw what two people who disagreed yeah. uh, yet worked through it what they could accomplish together. Mm. And they had a great marriage. Mm. Uh, they had a really, really good marriage. And you, you know a little bit about their story I've shared yeah. with you. Um, my dad had a Coumadin-induced stroke. And my mom went from having, a, 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 she had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that the doctor had told her she would die with, but not from. But due to exhausting herself from the caregiving, she mm. actually died before my dad. Mm. Um, three uh less than three years later uh, but 
I'll, I'll never forget um, on the day that we sat around her bed and um, watched her go to be in the presence of, of the ward. Uh, my dad was in a wheelchair due to the effects of the stroke, and uh, he just simply sat and watched her face. Very, very um, sharp mentally, but his verbal skills were greatly impaired. But he sat and watched and held her hand. And somebody had the presence of mind to take a couple pictures, and one was just simply of their hands. Uh, as they um, began the exit. Yeah. And it it we still have the picture of those two hands together. This mm -hmm. wasn't a perfect marriage. Uh, it was a marriage, and it certainly wouldn't have been perfect by modern standards. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in therapeutic means and all that, but they, they got the main things right. And therefore they ended well together uh, with between uh, somewhere around 55 years together. So I think that that's, uh, that's a lesson to me. I've, I've sat with couples, unbelieving couples, and I've showed them that picture uh, of the hands together. And I've watched as the tears begin to stream. These are young couples that are, yeah. you know, in their late 30s, early 40s. And I said, you know, I don't know what goals you have, but this is the real goal that you want to have. That's good. Uh, and so that's, that's the goal. That's yeah. the goal, to end, to end together. Uh, and understand that we're two flawed human beings, yeah. uh, clay vessels, but we are doing everything we can with the tools that God's given us. And that's what they did. Yeah. They did the best that they could with what they had. That's good. Butch, for those that are listening in that maybe are leading a team or they're on a team, what can team leaders or leaders do to help support um, people and to have healthy marriages? So I'm going to go back to uh, the the three steps that I mentioned okay. earlier. Providing safety is the first thing. Um, okay. And we want to provide safety. And, and part of providing safety is not judging. It's being confidential uh, with the information that we receive, with the normal exceptions, you know, when, when there's danger involved or has been. Uh, so I think it's it's providing providing safety and also again let me repeat being vulnerable, uh, making it okay for couples to not have the perfect marriage and to be starting out working on it where they are. I think there's nothing worse than feeling like you have to start from where you aren't. Wow. You know, okay. uh, when we can't even start. Uh, I'll, ne I'll never forget when I decided to get my DM in and realized that I had to have an MDiv before I got the DM in. I already have my master's degree. And it, there was a sense of, I can't start from where I am. And, you know, I, I bit the bullet, but, but I wasn't happy about it. Yeah. Uh, and But the, when couples don't feel that it's okay or that it's accepted for them to start where they are, then there's a real issue. And mm. so we make it okay for them to start where they are because they're going to move forward. Uh, and we keep 10 paces ahead are, and we start there. Wow. That's good and challenging for sure. 
all of us listening in. Um, but one of the unique things I think with um, living life overseas is sometimes one person can feel the call to maybe go onto the mission field or one feels the call to stay on the mission field and the other spouse. Any, any wisdom on how someone can, a couple can navigate those conversations or those uh, walk through that when one person maybe doesn't feel the call to go, one person feels the call to stay and the other one feeling the call to return. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've seen plenty of, uh, successful uh, missionary couples where only uh, one spouse felt the call and to go to the mission field. She chose me. And, uh, you know, part of choosing me was the package that she knew that I felt a call to be a missionary. Now, she developed a burden for where we were and yeah. a passion, I might add. But um, I've seen it uh, very successfully uh, done where only one spouse has felt called. Uh, and, and husband or wife, I, I think one of the most unique couples I came across was one that uh, that I, I served as a director over them. And she was called. She, In fact, she was an MK. And he, and he wasn't called, didn't sense a call. But, but he said, she is, and I can do this. With, hmm. You know, with the help of the Lord, he recognized that, he, you know, that she was called for a reason and he wanted to support that call. So they were she was the uh, active uh, worker on the field. And he um, he uh, gave the attention to the kids and, you know, and they had and have, uh, I guess, probably 20 years later now, at least. Uh, or close to it, they they have had a very very successful missionary career, and um, just by virtue of the fact of somebody saying, you know, I'm willing to go, uh, yeah. and uh, I believe that the Lord will will use me. Uh, now, a lot of people would disagree with that, saying, no, it's important that both sense the call. Well, I think it's important that one has a driving call, as okay. I would say, or or certainly a guided call, uh, and that the other is open and feels released uh, to do that. And that was the, in Pam in my case, although she didn't nurse a call to the mission field, uh, she certainly would vouch for the fact that God gave her a deep peace yeah. about going to the field. And I think that that, that became upsource a call. Now, if I understand this question, it's not only about going to the field, but it's about a change of direction. Yes. Once you may be on the field. Yeah. And, um, I think that, uh, again, honoring boundaries and exercising patience go, that goes a long way. We were walking with a couple a few years ago, and he, he was in a leadership position, and they were in disagreement mm. uh, about when he should uh, step aside. Uh, and they walked through this for a good two to three years. Uh, as the, you know, And, you know, there were times when, you know, the, the disagreement was more uh, in evidence yeah. than in other times, but there there was a good degree of patience that was exercised by both, and they listened they listened to each other, and they walked through the process. Mm -hmm. um, is, we at the ripe age of uh, fifty eight, I sensed from God a, a very drastic change in direction for our lives, one that you know e even kind of set me on edge. 
And my, I don't think Pam would have ever uh, gone that direction, but she understood that this this was happening in my heart, and she yeah. uh, and she began to support that. And so there was this process that we went through of coming to grips and what will this look like, and how do we how do we walk this out in a way that brings glory to God, uh, and at the same time um, is is healthy not only for us but for those around us. Yeah, good, good deal. Good deal. But you got one more question for you. Um, if someone li- is listening in and they they have concerns or they, they see a couple and they're concerned about their marriage, what are some ways that we can encourage in, in that way and rather than not be a hindrance? I remember you one time you talked you shared with me about being a an elephant and kind of leaning on people to to do the right thing. I don't know if that fits in this context or not, but yeah. um, the idea of somebody sees they're on a team and they see a marriage that seems to be struggling, how can they support them um, rather than criticize them or how can they support their healthy marriage? Yeah. And I think, uh, of course, people are sensitive about their marriage. And if, uh, if you begin to talk with them about their marriage, I think, it's important to do so uh, after giving, after having given it a great deal of thought and prayer. Um, and again, vulnerability and transparency goes a long ways. I think the first step for me would be to to model what it means to be vulnerable and transparent. Talk about some sharp arguments that uh, Pam and I have had. Talk about some, uh, you know, some. Uh, trying experiences, seasons that we've gone through, and make it okay, make it legal, uh, and normalize it for them. Because that again, we get back to the to the idea of safety. When we make it safe for people, uh, they have a tendency to become more vulnerable. Now, I will say there there is one caveat. There's one exception to that that I would want to bring out. If abuse is involved. Uh, in a marriage, then you will not probably get to that vulnerability uh, because um, the person ex- uh, who is uh, abusing certainly won't get there, or most of the time will not get there, and the recipient often will not either because that the recipient, who oftentimes is a wife but not always, is enabling the husband mm-hmm. by allowing him to get by with abusive behavior, whether that be physical, more often it's um, emotional or verbal abuse. Hmm. And um, so I think that in those situations, there are exceptions okay. uh, and sometimes very difficult uh, confrontational conversations have to be had. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, the, those conversations may not always go well, and that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have taken place. Okay. We always gauge conversations by how they went. Well, it went well, so, oh, good. Then it was, no, I don't agree with that. Sometimes a conversation that didn't go well was the exact conversation that needed to take place hmm. uh, because it needed to begin to open the door for healing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when somebody goes to the doctor and uh, the doctor has determined that they have cancer, to say that conversation went well, Right. We're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to do it in these in these situations either. More than likely, the conversation will not go all that well, but it is an important first step yeah. uh, towards healing. Good that makes sense. 
100%. Butch, will you pray for us? I appreciate you t- spending some time with us and sharing your wisdom. Um, would you pray for us that God will use this conversation to encourage those that are listening in? Of course. Father, we we lift up those who will be listening and those who will hear secondhanded, God, uh, any information that goes out from this cast. And Lord, we pray for marriages. We pray that you would do a miracle in those marriages that are under severe strain. Some, God, may be at an impossible juncture. And God, we pray that you would bring the right resources and the right voices and that you would provide safety. God, I pray for those whose whose marriage is suffering and they just feel that they're on this that they are on this journey alone. I pray that you would bring somebody into their life, a voice into their life that would enable them to know that they're not alone, uh, that this road has been well traveled, and God, that they can receive the help and healing that they need. God, I pray for for my friend, I pray for Aaron and for Heather, that you would continue to bless them and their marriage and those that they touch as well. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord.